<clears throat> so this morning I'm going to um, talk about uh, a topic that I think is, is very important, especially to frontline practitioners, as you're going to be faced with a lot of patients if you aren't, haven't already been faced with these patients who have chronic pain syndromes and um, are difficult to manage, especially because of their age and their comorbidities. So hopefully this will provide you with some, uh, you know, added armamentarium or more information about options that could be available to your patients. And, um, and I hope that I could walk you through different uh, conditions that are more prominent in this age group, <clears throat> and that way um, you'll be a little bit more alert to those conditions. So I have nothing to disclose. Uh, learning objectives, we want uh, you to be able to understand the treatments for facet-mediated arthropathy, which we'll go into in a little bit in depth. Explain the tests used to diagnose sacroiliitis and then eventually um, some of the interventional treatments that we have for that, as well as treatment options for persistent post-arthroplasty knee pain, which is a very interesting area right now because more and more uh, patients are getting knee replacements. But how many of you have patients who've had a knee replacement and still have knee pain? Yeah, right. So what options do you have? You're not going to do a knee injection at that point. There's no real joint, right? And so what are you left with? Opioids? So there are other options for that. We'll talk a little bit more about it. So in terms of the outline of the talk, <clears throat> after the introduction, we're going to focus on um, three major uh, pain syndromes, which is facet arthropathy, sacroiliitis, and hip and knee pain. And then we'll also add in two more um, treatment options. Actually, I should say there are four. Vertebral augmentation is really for vertebral compression fractures. And then we'll talk a little bit about neuromodulation at the very end. It's... Uh, it's definitely um, difficult taking care of elderly patients with chronic pain. Um, as you know, as you get older, patients get more com comorbidities. They also have uh, more pharmacotherapy on board, a lot more risks for interactions, and therefore you're not really able to use the full gamut of some of the medicines that you've been taught at this course, especially in this age group. And you have to deal with their functional capacity, you also have to deal with the risk of a fall. For example, all these medications that we talk about, which I'll talk about briefly in just a second, can increase the risk of dizziness and fatigue, right? The last thing that you want is for your elderly patient to have a fall and then suddenly have a hip fracture because you increase their dose of an opioid for their pain. So that's the last thing that you want for your patients. And of course, you also have problems with kidney function as we age. And some of the medications that you've been taught during this last week are cleared by the kidneys, things like gabapentin, right? And so those things can build up in the system. They also cause fatigue and dizziness, and so you're not able to use the full strength of those medications. So what are you left to do? Those medications that we tend to focus on when we talk about uh, chronic complex pain syndromes, they range from everything from anti-inflammatories like NSAIDs, but of course, like we said, we're also limited by kidney function, also GI bleeds, right? A lot of our patients, when they get up to a certain age group, they're at risk. They're on um, a wide variety of blood thinning agents. And so you have the risk of GI bleeds that you have to be aware of. Anticonvulsants in the neuropathic uh, category can increase the risk of lethargy, sedation, uh, and falls. Antidepressant medications that we talk about in treatments for neuropathic pain are things like tricyclic antidepressants and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Those can also increase the risk of a fall because they can make patients sleepy. Um, they also 
increase the uh, risk of arrhythmogenic events in patients who are susceptible to it. So as we have our elderly patients who may have histories of AFib, you don't want to be necessarily titrating the higher doses of tricyclic antidepressants because you can induce arrhythmias with those types of medications. And of course, muscle relaxants and opioids are the same thing. And so what are some of the things that we can do that we can sort of back off on some of these other medications that could be treatment options for the most common pain syndrome? So that's essentially what I want to try to impart for you guys today. And hopefully we, we can leave you with a, a little bit of a better understanding. So I'm going to first talk about facet arthropathy. And then first, before I um, go in depth about the treatment options, I just want to talk a little bit about the anatomy of the facet joint, because for those of us who don't necessarily deal with it all the time, we might, might not be as familiar with what exactly the facet joint is and how it contributes to pain in the low back. But it's a true synovial joint, and it is innervated by two medial branches. I'm going to talk about what a medial branch is in just a second. What essentially that joint is, which is right here, that joint is the superior articulate process of the level below up against the inferomedial articular, uh, the inferior articular process of the uh, uh, segment above, and it causes this joint right here. And that's really essentially the um, facet joint. We also call it the zygopophyseal joint or Z joint. Essentially what it does is it protects against axial rotation and shearing forces. It assists the discs in resisting compressive forces, especially when you extend the back uh, backwards. Um, it is load-bearing, and of course, the load-bearing amount varies based on the location, but it can be anywhere from 3 to 25% of your axial load. And so the lower um, joints, like L5-S1, are going to bear a lot more than the higher-up joints. And those are the ones that are more prone to having what we call facet arthropathy or arthritis of the facet joint. These joints are mediated by what we call medial branches, uh, or innervated, excuse me, by medial branches. They arise from the dorsal ramus. I don't know if you can see it from those of you in the back, but you have the dorsal ramus of, of the nerve root right here, and it branches into a lateral branch and an intermediate branch. But then there's this tiny little branch here called the medial branch, and what it does is it splits into two small nerves, the ascending branch and the descending branch. And the ascending branch is going to go to the joint proper, and the descending branch goes to the level below. So it's important to understand that a facet joint is innervated by two nerves. So one facet joint is innervated by two medial branches, the one at the level of and the one from the level above. And then there's a segment of that branch that also comes in and innervates the, the paraspinous muscle. So in the low back, it's also called the multifidus. And that's important because when you test your patients for this type of pain condition, there's a test that I'm going to point out. And now I hope that will at least give you a better understanding of why the paraspinous muscle can sometimes be involved. <clears throat> With aging, the lumbar facet joints become weaker. Their orientation changes from more coronal to sagittal. And so when that happens, when it goes from a more coronal to a sagittal position, it ends up increasing the rotational stress on that joint. That's with aging. As you go down the back, naturally, in any age, it also does that as well. So as you go from L1, L2 down to L5S1, you can see that this joint goes from a more coronal uh, orientation and it flattens out as you go down to a more sagittal. So that also naturally increases the stress load on that joint in the spine. So how much of chronic low back pain really is attributed to this condition? Anywhere from 15 to 45%. That's a huge number. 
It's a huge range because there's also a wide variety of factors. But it's important to understand that this is a major contributor to axial spinal back pain. The prevalence can range anywhere from 60 to 40%. But what's important is the prevalence increases with age. So in the elderly, this is going to be one of the predominant reasons why they have chronic low back pain. And it, the etiology for why they have inflammation in the joint can vary. It can be anywhere from just inflammatory arthritis to synovitis. It could be microtrauma. So a lot of the uh, patients that I see who were construction workers, they get it at an earlier age, but they really have um, a big problem with this as uh, they get older. One of the things that we do is we treat um, ex-NFL players. You should see their spines. I mean, they, the NFL does not prepare them, I think, for the type of inflammation that they see in these joints. And we, and we treat them with this. Uh, it can be quite helpful. <clears throat> so imaging can show this arthritis. And, um, and it can grade it from anywhere from mild to moderate to severe facet um, arthropathy. However, it's important to understand, and, and you can see here's the actual, this probably didn't translate very well in the slide, but there's inflammation in this joint right here. And there's irregular joint surfaces, especially when you get older. And there's bony growth spurs that can accompany um, the arthritis. But it's important to understand that the presence or absence of facet arthropathy on your imaging does not correlate with how severe the pain is in their low back. And I hope that that's something that you um, took from this series of, of courses, uh, especially during this conference. A lot of these are clinical diagnoses, and imaging can help confirm it. But just because something says mild and moderate, and they're showing to you and it's quite severe, and you say, well, this doesn't add up, it doesn't mean that your patient is um, making it you know, more than it's out to be. Because we know that chronic pain induces central sensitization, correct? And so when this happens, it doesn't necessarily have to be a very severe arthritis to induce severe pain in your patients, okay? So I hope at least that, that, that you can understand that from an imaging perspective. So when you talk to your patients, they're going to tell you that they have predominant axial spine pain. So they're going to say, most of my pain is in my low back. Sometimes it radiates, but it's mostly in my low back. When a patient comes to me and says, Doc, I have pain, it radiates down my back. Sometimes I ask, the, or it radiates down my legs. I want, first thing I ask is, how much does it radiate down your leg? Because it can refer down to a certain extent. I'm going to show you the referral patterns for this type of pain. And it's quite interesting because it can really be very similar to a radiculopathy. And as we age and we get older, how many of our patients might have disc bulges, you think, on imaging? All of them, right? But as you know and as you treat your patients, you'll also know that things that you see on imaging doesn't necessarily translate to the clinical reason for their pain, right? You can have a disc bulge but it might not be causing the pain. You have to be able to tease that out. And that's what essentially um, we do when we see patients with chronic low back pain. So we're going to ask them, we say, how much of it does it go down your leg? And based on the, the way that they describe their pain, which I'm going to show you in a second, it leads me towards either radiculopathy or this, facet arthropathy, which I'll talk about in a second. But it's mostly non-radicular pain. Older patients complain of this more um, than, than the younger patients. The exception can be whiplash injury after a car accident. So younger patients who've had whiplash injury after a car accident can, can come in with a lot of cervical facet arthropathy. And there's really no clear-cut factors when you ask a patient that can, they, they'll tell you that it will reproduce their pain. They'll say it's everything. When they move around, they do anything, it hurts. So what are these referral patterns that I'm talking about? Well, the predominance of their pain is going to be in their low back. 
But there's quite an extent of, um, or I should say a range, of where they're going to feel their pain. They'll feel it in their low back. They'll feel it in their buttocks. A certain percentage of about 30% of patients will feel it going down to about the level of their knees. And that's actually one of the things that I ask patients when they say it goes down their legs. I say, how far does it go down? Does it go down to your feet? Or does it stay about your, your knee level? If they say it's predominantly my low back, sometimes I feel it down to my knees. It makes me feel a little bit more like they're talking about the facet arthropathy. Sometimes it can even refer into the groin in like 6% of patients. 3% can actually go into the abdomen, such as sacroiliitis. So you can see how confusing this is. Because patients are going to come to you, and they're not going to just have facet arthropathy. That's in a beautiful world, right? But they're going to come, and they're going to have a whole variety of things on imaging. And it's up to you to be able to tease out what might be the predominant cause of their pain. And, and, and the other thing is, don't get me wrong, is they can have both, right? So they can also have radiculopathy, and they can have facet arthropathy. And both could be contributing to their pain as well. It, it's not just one or the other. In the, when you have problems in the neck region, the, uh, the areas that they can refer to can be anywhere from the occiput, so they can get cervicogenic headache. That's also very important for you to understand in those patients who have neck pain associated with severe headache that's intractable to a lot of migraineous medications, that it can be attributed to C2-C3, and at the C2-C3 level is called the third occipital nerve that arises, and that can be contributing to a lot of their headache, especially in whiplash patients. Also um, referred down to the shoulder level. Rarely does it go past the elbow, mostly to about the shoulder level. So when they tell you they have neck pain, radiates down to my shoulders, and then, and then um, going through some of the things that I'm going to talk to you about, you want to be thinking about facet arthropathy. There's no gold standard for diagnosing facet arthropathy. You can have, like I said earlier, a lot of overlapping pain complaints and a lot of other problems, and they can have multiple pain generators. It might not just be coming from the facet joint. The disc bulges can also be contributing to their pain. I'm going to talk a little bit about medial branch blocks, but just to let you know that there can be false positives and false negatives after doing these diagnostic blocks that we do to help tease out from our perspective whether or not patients are getting this from their facet joints or not. What are some of the physical maneuvers that we do in our clinic to figure out if this is really facet mediated? Well, in the past, we used to say, okay, you know, bend forward, bend sideways, stand, walk, you know, we extend the patient, we rotate the patient. There's something called facet loading. Have you heard of that? Has anybody heard of facet loading? How many of you think that facet loading, for those of you who know it, was the gold standard? If it was positive, they had facet-mediated pain. That's what we were taught, right? Wrong. So it turns out it's actually very nonspecific. What facet loading is, is when you essentially extend the back and then you rotate the, the patient backwards. So you're really putting that stress and loading that facet joint. And when they tell you, yes, it hurts, it hurts really bad, that's exactly the pain, we'd say, oh, okay, you've got facet-mediated pain. It turns out it's actually not very specific. And it turns out that the most specific thing to diagnose um, facet-mediated low back pain is paraspinal muscle tenderness. So it turns out that this, well, this is a galvometer. Basically, it's just putting a specific pressure on the paraspinous muscle. But... And that way, you're not pressing either too hard or too lightly. It's, it's always a standard, standard amount. But it turns out that the most sensitive and specific uh, examination maneuver that you can do is um, a paraspinal muscle pressure test. And if they tell you that they have severe tenderness at the paraspinous muscle, that's very highly correlated with facet-mediated pain. Now, and that's important because you may have patients who have muscular pain, right? It's not coming necessarily from the spine. 
So one of the things that we do is we'll test here at the paraspinous level, but then we'll go laterally and we'll keep pushing. And if they tell us, wow, doc, it hurts just as bad over, over here as it hurts over there, it's probably not facet mediated, right? We're thinking now more muscular. But if they tell us, yeah, it hurts really bad here and you go more lateral, does it hurt as bad over here? No, doc, it's really more, more closer to the midline. Yeah, then you want to be thinking about facet mediated pain. How do we treat patients? Well, of course, everything that I want to tell you when it comes to interventional management approaches, that multimodal approaches is essential. Yes, I do interventions. That's not the only thing that I do. And it's important to get that across because I think sometimes people like to put themselves in, in one or two camps. It's either interventional or pharmacotherapy, and that's not true. And, that's, and especially when we talk about pain, we know that the most, you know, the the best uh, way that we can treat our patients is uh, with a multidisciplinary, multimodal approach to pain treatments. So when I do treatments for these patients, when I do interventions, I tell them, look, if you get relief, that's what you're going to use to be able to do physical therapy. So we can strengthen those muscles, we can strengthen your posture, get the right you know, uh, balance and the right types of activities that you should be doing. And I'm sure that you couldn't have done that as well when you were having pain, so we're going to use this period of time, six months to a year, to be able to do more physical therapy. Does that make sense? That's the right way to think about interventions because nothing in this world lasts forever. I think you all know that. And so you want to be able to use the benefits that you get from these interventions to be able to get your patients to do more. There's no study that evaluated pharmacotherapy versus physiotherapy specifically for facet-mediated pain. We do know that for nonspecific uh, low back pain that osteopathic manipulation can be helpful, acupuncture can be helpful. So these are things you want to think about. First-line agents when it comes to facet-mediated pain are NSAIDs and acetaminophen. Of course, we just talked about how NSAIDs are slightly high risk for these patients, especially because of the risk for stroke, the risk of GI bleed. And so, um, you know, that's why I'm going to talk a little bit about the interventions associated with it. There's little evidence to support acetaminophen over NSAID or one versus the other. Your slide decks that you have will have these references on the bottom of each slide, so you can always refer to it. But Schnitzer published a very good comprehensive review of clinical trials evaluating the pharmacotherapy for low back pain. It turns out for acute low back pain, muscle relaxants are very good. For chronic low back pain, antidepressants are very good. And the reason why, again, is what? When it comes to chronic low back pain, we talked about the central sensitization that's occurring, right? And that's why we use things like anticonvulsants such as gabapentin and antidepressants such as tricyclic antidepressants. But again, remember, used judiciously in the elderly patient population. So that's why we talk a little bit about medial branch blocks. So in the past, people used to inject in the actual joint. It turns out that we would target, now that we know that the joint is innervated by these, two, by these nerves, the level above and the level of, that we can inject and we can target the actual nerve, use a small amount of numbing medicine, have them go home with a pain diary, and see if they get relief. And if their relief is exquisite, like they went from a 9 or a 10 out of 10 to a 2 out of 10, that's really telling for us. That lets us know, wow, a lot of that low back pain is coming from those um, facet-mediated joints. So the criteria for success is anywhere from 50 to 90%. Nowadays, we're a lot more stringent on our criteria, and we try to shoot for somewhere between 80 or 90% pain relief. Of course, there can be false positives, and that can happen with any kind of intervention. That's something to remember. And there's a lot of controversy. If you start looking this up in the literature, there's controversy about should we be doing placebo blocks? You know, just the fact that people got it will make them maybe feel like they feel better. Um, should we be doing 
confirmatory blocks. So should we do one set of diagnostic blocks and then do a second one just to really confirm it? Some insurance companies want that, some don't, um, before proceeding to radiofrequency ablation, which I'll talk about. Um, and then other people are saying, why even do these blocks in the first place? It's actually not very um, uh, cost-effective. Uh, most people who you suspect are going to have this, they're going to do very well, and you're going to go to radiofrequency ablation anyway. So there's a lot of controversy about that. But be that as it may, and it's not really the focus of the talk, I want to just tell you that most of us will do a set of diagnostic blocks. If it's helpful, we'll proceed to the next step, which is radiofrequency ablation. We do this under fluoroscopy. I don't know if you can see from where you are. But right here, there's a shadow here called the transverse process. And here's the superior articulate process. Here's that joint that I was talking to you about. And we target it right here, where the transverse process meets the superior articulate process. You know that term? Remember in med school and, and in your clinical training, the Scotty dog sign? Uh, so this is the eye of the Scotty dog, basically. So we focus on the eye of the Scotty dog, and we put you know, half a cc of local anesthetic, send them home, um, and then see if it's helpful. And if it's helpful, we'll have them come back for radiofrequency um, ablation or denervation. And basically what it is, we place the needle in the same spot, but instead of injecting local anesthetic, which doesn't last long, it's more of a confirmatory test, we put a little probe through it, and a radiofrequency energy is channeled through that small little needle, and it just causes a little zap, like a little blip, and it severs that nerve. And so that can actually give relief for six months to a year. Most of the time, it's a year of relief, which is amazing for patients who have really, really bad chronic low back pain especially when they failed so many of the other pharmacotherapeutic agents that we've tried on these patients. So this is sort of how we place it. This is a cross um, sort of schematic of, of where we place the needle. Here's that transverse process. Here's the superior articulate process. Place the needle here. There's that medial branch right there, and we just sort of zap it. In the neck, we can go about it two ways. Most of us usually go use a posterior approach. So we just place it right there and zap that little nerve right there. And like I said, Typically, last six months to a year, what happens after a year? I mean, is it it? Is that it? No, you can repeat it. So this is something that can be repeated. And I have a lot of patients who come in. They come in yearly. They get this done, and they live their life. They don't have to take any medications whatsoever. And, um, and their, and their uh, children are very grateful because they're able to do the things with their, with their grandchildren and whatnot. So that's radiofrequency ablation and facet-mediated pain. I'm going to move on to sacroiliitis. So sacroiliitis is a very common condition. How many of you have actually diagnosed your patients with sacroiliitis? Great. So the sacroiliac joint is a diarthrodial joint. It's designed for stability. It is the largest axial joint in the human body. It's huge. And it's, it sits right here. It's where the sacrum meets the ilium. And we just talked about facet joints, right? So here are all these facet joints that I talked about. It. So if you have really bad arthritis in these facet joints, why would you not have sacroiliitis? What would, what would make you not necessarily have sacroiliitis? You have a high risk. So if you do have one, you're likely to have the other, is what I'm trying to get at. There's a high correlation between the two. And that's actually something important, because you can have a person who's got both, and they can have the radiofrequency ablation. They can say, wow, doc, you know, it really helped my pain. It went from an 8 or a 9 out of 10 down to about a, a 3 or a 4. But I still have that sort of residual pain. Um, it still hurts me a little bit. It aches you know, when I get up to move especially when I twist my body. You turn out to do some tests that I'm going to talk about. It turns out they might have sacroiliitis. You treat the sacroiliitis, and there you go. A lot of their pain is, is gone. So that's something to keep in mind. 16 to 30% of chronic low back pain can be attributed to sacroiliitis. By the sixth decade of life, there's a predominance of what we call pericapsular ankylosis. You're going to see a lot of inflammation in that joint by 
sixth decade of life. By the eighth decade of life, there's a lot of erosion and a lot of plaque formation that can happen at that joint. So look at the sacroiliitis referral patterns. Does this look familiar to you? It's very similar to the facet-mediated ones, right? So you can have mostly low back pain. 94% of it is going to be low back to the buttock area. But 50% of people will say that it goes down their leg to about what? To about the level of the knee. So that's, again, I impart that to you to keep that in mind. 14% will go into the groin because it's going down the anterior portion of the, um, of the joint. And even 2% can go into the abdomen. So what are some of the physical exam maneuvers? Now, there's upwards of seven or more different physical exam maneuvers to test for sacroiliitis. I'm only pointing out two because these are the ones that we really focus on in our clinic. But we, there's something called the Faber test. So you have the patient lay supine. And what you do is you flex the, the leg at the knee. You have them cross their leg over the other knee. And then you have them bring the knee down. So basically, they go from, I don't know if you can see me. But basically, you go from, I'm going to fall, right? So I'm going to go from here. And then as they're laying supine, you just bring it down and externally rotate. And FABER is an acronym. It stands for flexion, F, abduction, F-A-B, external rotation, E-R. So Faber test. And so that's one test. And if they tell you, yes, doc, it hurts, it's, it's exactly where it hurts in that low back area, then that's one you know, way to test for it. The second way, of course, is uh, Gainsland's test. So again, we flex at the knee. We extend the contralateral joint, and we flex the ipsilateral joint. We test for it and see if it, if it also um, contributes to the pain. So there's a wide variety of pieces of literature that will tell you, you know, how many different kinds of tests uh, are there and what are the sensitivities and specificities for each of those tests. Be that as it may, what they say mostly is that if you have two or three positive tests, that it is highly sensitive and highly specific for um, sacroiliitis, upwards of about 70 to 80%. The other test that we do also is just... um, uh, tenderness at the, at the joint with, with palpation. So the gold standard for, for diagnosing sacroiliac uh, disease is, is actually um, an SI joint injection. I don't know how many of you knew that. But an SI joint injection is actually the gold standard. It's been shown to be both diagnostic and potentially therapeutic because we add a little bit of steroid in there. And it can provide relief for six months to a year. Now, that can be very um, gung-ho. A lot of patients will say that it lasts maybe three to five months. But there is literature to support that it can go as much as a year. And what you do, like I said, is that you take that amount of time that they have of, of pain freedom or reduction in pain, and you have them do the physical therapy that will help them get better. So that when, you know, the way we explain it to them is when the block wears away, hopefully you're not in as worse a condition as you were when we started. You'll be better off. Now, what about patients who've had SI joint injections and they don't last very long? only a couple of weeks. Well, we're not going to be injecting every couple of weeks. That's not healthy, right, for the joint. So what option do we have there? There is radiofrequency ablation called lateral sacral branch denervation. It's been around for over a decade, and it's really for patients who've, who've done really well in the past with sacroiliac joint injections, but it's, hasn't, it's not as helpful anymore. And uh, what we do is the lateral sacral branches, they come out of the neuroframen, they run across the sacrum as such, and right here is actually where the joint is. So, you know, here's the ilium right here. And so it runs into the joint. And basically, we target where we see those orange 
dots here on the diagram. We place our radio frequency probe here, and basically we lesion across, basically cutting off at the pass these lateral sacral branches before they get into the joint, and that can provide relief for, again, six months to a year, very similar to the facet-mediated radio frequency ablations that we do. On to refractory hip and knee pain. This is a big problem in our country right now because a lot of patients are, um, are having knee pain, especially as we get older and especially as um, the obesity epidemic is increasing in our country. Um, and patients um, are obviously, uh, they have to be within a certain category to be able to undergo the um, arthroplasties, the knee arthroplasties, right? So you can't be too old. You can't have too many comorbidities because you're going to have to do all that physical therapy. Otherwise, they'll say, orthopedic surgeons will say that they're not a good candidate for it. Also, they have to be within a certain BMI, right? So all those people who have obesity as one of the main causes for causing the um, uh, condition in their knee, the arthritis, may be at a loss because they need to lose weight to be able to get the uh, knee replaced, right? But how are you going to get to that weight loss if you can't even move because of the pain? Isn't it weird? It's a catch-22. It's horrible. It's a horrible state to be in. And they've tried all sorts of injections, the steroid injections, the coxcomb, right, the hyaluronic acid injections. Those things maybe last for a couple of weeks, not very, not very long time. What are, what are you left to do with? To give opioids? Might not necessarily be the best thing if you want them to get up and be active because it's not going to be enough sometimes, right? So it, it's very interesting because I just spent the last uh, couple of um, uh, pain syndromes talking about joints but I was talking about the nerve supply to the joint, right? So this is really a shift in the paradigm of thinking of arthritis pain. So we used to think, okay, this is a joint, so this is a joint problem, we're focusing on the joint. But you know, over the last several years and decades, people are starting to really rethink about joints in terms of the nervous supply to the joint. Can we target that nervous supply? And these are small articular branches, just like the medial branch in the facet joint, that really have no other purpose than to relay the sensory information of pain or sensation from the joint, but has nothing to do with, with motor function or any of the skin sensory functions around that area. It's truly an um, articular joint. I'm sorry, articular nerve. So uh, about five or six years ago, they found um, through a wide variety of uh, anatomic dissections, these genicular nerves. It's so funny to me that I used to think that we knew everything about the human body, and yet it's now 2000, it's, you know, 2016, and we're still finding articular branches of nerves that we can target. So the genicular nerves are, are not really called genicular nerves. You'll hear that term a lot, genicular nerves, but it's really just a complex of nerves because there is no nerve that arises from the knee. But the genicular nerves come from a wide variety of branches of muscles and um, from the uh, femoral and the um, peroneal distribution of nerves and the saphenous. Well, eventually the saphenous from the femoral. And Franco and his uh, colleagues uh, went through an anatomical dissection. They found that um, the superomedial branch, the superolateral branch over here, and the inframedial branch of the knee um, can contribute as much as 70 to 80% of uh, pain coming, arising from the joint. There's also this fourth nerve called the retinacular branch that's up in the suprapatellar area that can also um, contribute to this 
sensation of pain. And so the first study actually uh, was in 2011, and they looked at uh, 38 elderly patients with severe osteoarthritis knee pain that had it for more than three months. They um, had a positive response. They, they put small needles to those points that I talked about and gave a small amount of uh, local anesthetic, and they got relief from that. So there was a positive response. And that these patients had no response to other conservative treatments. So they tried a wide variety of medications. They tried intra-articular steroid injections. They tried the coxcomb. They didn't get relief. So that's a pretty, pretty good um, cohort of patients to look at. And they were randomly assigned to either get the neurotomy or to get a sham procedure. Basically, they didn't get neurotomy. And in those patients who did get the neurotomy, their knee pain went um, at the four week and 12 mark was considerably lower. They were actually much more um, able to walk around, so they were more active, and there were no adverse, adverse events during the follow-up period. And so they, they basically um, concluded that RF neurotomy of these nerves could lead to significant pain reduction in people where they're refractory to all the treatments that we're used to. Yes? So, yeah, they're 80 degrees Celsius or more. Now, it's important to understand that uh, I, I can talk about this a little bit later because that's, it's technical, but cooled radiofrequency ablation is another means of using this. Cooled radiofrequency ablation has a needle tip at 60 degrees Celsius. However, the uh, needle tip, even though it's 60 degrees Celsius, the tissue temperature is still 80 degrees Celsius or more. So just to let you know. But look at this. So this is a patient who actually has had a knee replacement already and has severe pain. And so we target these areas that I talked about, supralateral, supramedial, inframedial. This is what it looks like on lateral imaging. So it's midway through the diaphysis. We do the diagnostic block. They go home, get relief, come back, do the radiofrequency ablation. So this is a patient in our clinic, had the knee replaced, still having pain. And these are now for the cooled radiofrequency portion. We place the needles right here. Uh, under uh, the fluoroscopy machine, you can see the image here in the background. And then we place the probe through, and we go ahead and we do the lesion. We give them some light sedation, but they go home the same day, and they start feeling well within two weeks. You can also target articular branches of the hip. There are two articular branches, the articular branches of the femoral nerve and the articular branches of the obturator nerve. Those are the two nerves in the hip that we've noticed. And this is more for anterior hip pain, not as much posterior hip pain. And so, we, again, we target here and here at the incisure of the acetabulum for the obturator branch and at the spina iliaca anterior inferior, um, or at least close to it, for the articular femoral branch. And so this all started way back in 2001, actually, when they started looking at potential radiofrequency ablations for, the, for patients who have hip pain. And again, in this set of, uh, I believe it was 14 patients who underwent, yeah, 14 cases who underwent radiofrequency ablation. This is a case series. Their VAS scores went from an average of 6.8 down to 2.7. And that actually was pretty much consistent for up to about 11 months in these patients. There are also some case reports about patients who couldn't get a total hip arthroplasty. There were contraindications. They had comorbidities. They were too obese. And so they underwent um, uh, radiofrequency ablation uh, just as I talked about, and it can provide them as an alternate means instead of getting the hip arthroplasty. Again, these are, are where we target it, spina iliaca anterior inferior, and the incisor of the acetabulum right here. Again, this is a patient in our clinic. These are where we place those two needles. 
under radio frequency, under fluoroscopy, and then here's the radio frequency probe going through one of those needles. Vertebral augmentation. So this is the fourth um, uh, disease complex process that I just wanted to focus on, especially in the elderly patient population. How many of you tre have treated a vertebral compression fracture? Again, the majority of, of people in this room. Unfortunately, it's a very common problem that can happen as we age. 1.4 million fractures per year. It's the most common cause is osteoporosis. Incidence of women at greater than 50 years of age can be 26%, but as you get up to about 80 years of age, it's almost 40%. It's huge. And it can be a cause of a large number of sequelae, pulmonary dysfunction. If you have several compression fractures that causes severe kyphosis of the spine, you can get a lot more pulmonary complications, immobility, spinal deformity, and of course, uh, chronic pain and depression. The risk factors, as I said, are age, gender, postmenopausal women are at a higher risk of developing vertebral compression fractures, cigarette smoking, ethnicity, Caucasians and Asians are at a higher risk of developing these um, than African Americans, long-term st long steroid therapy, people who have renal or hepatic failure, and prolonged immobilization. This is essentially what it looks like. It's a wedge deformity. So that, that square look to the um, uh, vertebral uh, column ends up becoming a wedge. Vertebroplasty is one option for these patients. What we do is we place a needle that goes through the pedicle of the spine, and when once we enter into the um, vertebral body, we go ahead and we inject some cement. This is what it looks like under fluoroscopy. This is blown up, just let you know. It looks pretty big, I know. But it goes through, enters into the vertebral body. The, um, the cement is radio-opaque, so we may, uh, you'll be able to see the spread of that cement inside the vertebral body. There is a variant to this technique called kyphoplasty, and it's similar in the sense that you do go through the pedicle, but once the needle is in the proper location, instead of just injecting cement, which in, will interdigitate into the vertebral body, we actually inflate a balloon. And because these are mostly in osteoporotic patients, that balloon is gonna really um, press up against the insides of that vertebral body, and it can provide uh, height augmentation. So that's the difference, essentially, what, between kyphoplasty and vertebroplasty. So in, in vertebroplasty, you take it as it is, you inject the cement, and it stabilizes that vertebral body. Whereas in kyphoplasty, you'll actually cause this balloon cavity formation, and that way you can basically go from that wedge and try to bring it as high back to normalcy as possible. Then we deflate the balloon, so it causes this cavity, and then in the cavity we inject the cement, so it goes in. So, how many of you know of the New England Journal of Medicine articles that sort of put the kibosh on vertebroplasty? How many of you are familiar with it or aware? This is really important for you to understand. So this came out in 2009. There were two papers that, came, that were published in the, same art, in the same journal of New England Journal of Medicine, that same edition, and they both, both basically said that vertebroplasty was no different than um, placebo. Now, it's important to understand the specifics of those studies. In those studies, they looked at what they called acute fractured patients, but those patients with acute fractures were actually anywhere from one year or less. So most of us would never perform vertebroplasty on patients who've had a compression fracture for at a year of, of, of age or, or more, especially not at four to six weeks. 
And the patient's pain wasn't clearly provoked by the compression fracture. That wasn't very clear in these studies. The control group in both groups underwent local anesthetic infiltration of the periosteum. So that's very important to understand. If you're injecting the periosteum with local anesthetic in both groups, you're going to get pain relief, even for a short period of time. So it wasn't appropriate to be injecting local anesthetic in the control group. And there was no threshold in pain scores. So what do I mean by that? They included in that study, in both studies, patients who had a pain score of 2 or 3. How much better do you think you're going to get? If you're a 2 or a 3 out of 10 a year out from your compression fracture, is a vertebroplasty really the right thing to do? Do you think you're going to go from a 2 or a 3 to a 1? So that's why it's really important to look at these studies. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so when this came out, a lot of people said, OK, well, that's it. That's the end of vertebroplasty. That, that's not going to happen anymore. What happened? Why are we still doing it? Well, one year later came out the Vertos II trial. This came out and was published in The Lancet another respectable high-end journal. And in this study, they looked at 202 patients. Their mean age was about 75 years of age. They had acute pain, so the compression fracture was less than six weeks, and they had at least a five or more in terms of their score, uh, VAS scores. They were randomized to either the vertebroplasty or conservative treatment. So they didn't necessarily inject the periosteum with local anesthetic. They looked at one month and at one year. And sure enough, there was a significant difference, at least 2.6 in their VAS score um, between uh, the control group and the interventional group. And so that's why we're still doing vertebroplasty, because when this trial came out, it was a more appropriate study, and we were able to at least confirm what we knew clinically of what we see with patients. Yes? It's something that you need to discuss with the patient about how, how much more likely you're going to achieve in terms of pain control. So it's not something that there are some clinicians who will say that if you're at a VAS score of three, I'm probably not, I don't think it's worth doing a, a, a vertebroplasty. There are other clinicians that could say that, you know, the risk may be very small and therefore it may be worth trying. That's something that needs to be a discussion between you and the patient. Yes. versus kyphoplasty? That's a great question. Some of it can be institutional-based. So there are some institutions and some practices that just do one versus the other. I'll tell you, at Washington University, we do mostly vertebroplasty. We don't do a lot of kyphoplasty. Where I trained at, at Hopkins, we did mostly kyphoplasty and not as much vertebroplasty. Is there a significant difference? Is there an advantage of one over the other? That's also um, a point of debate. You know, earlier pieces of literature said vertebroplasty versus kyphoplasty, not much of a big difference. Um, there's now more recent literature that might suggest that kyphoplasty may have better outcomes than vertebroplasty. So again, it's something that may be just relegated to what, your pra what the practice does. I'm going to talk, oh, I'm going to, just for the sake of uh, fin being able to finish up, I'm going to um, answer questions at the end, but I'm going to move on to neuromodulation and then we can get some uh, questions at the end. So. Neuromodulation, for those of you who might not know, um, basically it's the gate control theory, the Wall-Melzac theory of uh, pain control, that we know that noxious stimuli are mediated via the A-delta and the C-fibers, but we do know that there are inner neurons that um, can block or suppress the firing of these neurons, and so what spinal cord stimulation does is it causes a um, feedback loop that will actually activate these 
negative inner uh, uh, neurons that will suppress the um, activation of these A delta C fibers. Um, it uses the large diameter afferents from the dorsal column, and um, we, there are even supraspinal loops that may be involved. Basically, if you're looking at a cross-sensional uh, diagram, um, in the epidural space, we place these um, uh, cathodes and anodes, and basically it produces um, a, um, uh, a stimulation that uh, goes across the spine. We can direct that stimulation a little bit more precisely um, by placing anodes, cathodes, anodes, and a wide variety of different programming options for our patients. What, when do you want to be thinking about spinal cord stimulation for patients? Well, the high probability of success, um, and this isn't just necessarily uh, relegated to the elderly, but it's for uh, at any age group, failed back surgery syndrome, patients who um, have post-laminectomy pain syndromes, they've had back fusions, and they still have radiculopathy. They're not going to be re-operated on, now they're older. And the surgeon has said, look, you know, this is it. We're not going to be fusing, you know, T, uh, T1 to sacrum. CRPS 1 or 2, brachial plexitis, arachnoiditis, I think was discussed at one of the talks in this conference. This is another um, very interesting one, peripheral vascular disease. And this is actually, I mean, these are indications that are accepted by insurance companies as well. So significant uh, uh, pain associated with peripheral vascular disease. And then in Europe, a lot of patients are actually getting spinal cord stimulation for angina of pectoris, which is very interesting, and painful peripheral neuropathy. Now, classically, we used to tell that, we used to tell patients that if you have mostly axial spine pain, remember that stuff that I talked about in the beginning, the facet-mediated pain and all that stuff, that you're not going to necessarily have very good results with spinal cord stimulation. However, that's changed recently with high-frequency um, spinal cord stimulation, things like Nevro. Um, and so uh, that could now is becoming an option for patients who have mostly axial back pain. Um, but again, spinal cord injury and stump pain are not necessarily um, um, something that you'll find very successful. Now, um, what are the advantages? So it's electrical uh, stimulation instead of uh, drug infusion. It's, it's testable. This is what's really important. You know, a lot of patients, when they come to you and they say, Doc, the surgeon has said that they're going to go ahead and, you know, do this neuroma excision. Should I or shouldn't I do it? And you're left with sort of, well, I, I, you know, I, what, did, what did your surgeon say? <laughs> right? And so, and, and it's very hard to be able to quantify what kind of success they're going to get from that kind of surgery. But what's important to understand with spinal cord stimulation is that it is quantifiable because there's a test that we do. There's a period of time that they go through, which I'm going to talk about in a second, and, um, and that way, they know going in, if they're going to get an, a spinal cord stimulator implant, they know how much relief they're going to get up front. So they know what they're getting themselves into. And that's really important. Again, what's also very good is that this is non-destructive. It's a reversible thing. So this is an implant. And if something happens, something changes, and it needs to come out, it can come out. It's not like a back fusion. Um, so it doesn't burn bridges. It can be a long-term solution. Um, and for a lot of patients um, in the elderly, it can always be preferable as initial surgical treatment, especially, I work a lot with Susan McKinnon um, at WashU, and she's a big name in, in plastic and reconstructive, reconstructive, reconstructive surgery, excuse me. And, um, and she sends me patients to say, look, you know, I would really prefer if you want to see if she would be a good candidate or he would be a good candidate for a stimulator rather than me doing this huge, big operation, which I really don't know if it's going to help or not. So this is something to think about. So like I said, there are two parts to this. There's a screening trial. So we, this is an outpatient in the clinic. 
we place uh, uh, the leads in and we just tape it up. It's not implanted. They go home, they try it for anywhere from three to five days. Sometimes at some institutions it can be as long as seven days. And they, it's like a test drive with a car, see if it even helps with their pain. Then they come back and at most institutions they get it removed because they don't want it to be an infection risk. And they ask them, how much pain relief did you get? Was it helpful? Did you like the stimulation? Did you like the programming options available for you? And if they said yes and it's greater than 50% pain relief and they know exactly what they're getting into, then we'll have them come in and they'll do the percutaneous implant. Again, for most institutions, again, this is an outpatient uh, procedure. It's booked in the operating room. Two small incisions, about two to three centimeters uh, in length um, in the mid-low back, and then two to three centimeters for the battery generator. So it looks like, th so under fluoroscopy, I don't know if you can see it from where you are. We can place either one or two leads based on the degree of pattern of pain that they have. And then there's an implantable little battery. Um, we can place it over the buttock area. We can place it on the side. Everything's internal. And I, like I said, everything's reversible. Large number of studies that you can look at that talk about reduction in pain. I'm not going to bore you necessarily with the details. You have the slide deck and you can refer to it. But anywhere from... A, 74% of patients in these trials had greater than 50% relief of pain, and it was, it was held at several years. The follow-up is eight years, three years, 59 months. So this is a long-term solution for some of your elderly patients. Reduction in medication, this is very important. So 50% reduction in medication use at three years across the board with a lot of these. In this study by Taylor, 53% of patients no longer used any medications for pain because of their spinal cord stimulation. Things to think about. Improvement in their daily activities. Follow-up at one year and at three years. Significant improvements in function and mobility. So what I hope that I was able to achieve with you today is a little bit of an understanding about um, that, that it's, it's a very complex way of treating patients um, in the elderly group um, with pain and that it has to be multimodal, has to be multidisciplinary, but that there are options in the interventional um, arena for your patients but sometimes you might not be aware of these options. And so just being able to have that in your armamentarium, and if you need to either refer that patient to the appropriate person to do it, um, to, to have that in mind. And of course, like I said, in carefully selected patients, these can be a, a huge boon to, to your patients. And let's watch you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>